and uh, we're live so welcome to hometown daily season 2 episode 211 for july 30th 2023 the face of pizza <laughs> i said that in the ai threw me an error message so um I am Mayor Watt, that is hometown.com, and up there is the AI that I just spoke of. You want to say hello to everybody? Yes, good evening, hometown citizens. Hometown citizens, pick up that can. Oh, that's not what the hometown, uh, that's not what the hometown AI actually does. It just keeps track of me and makes sure that I don't make any flubs, which I often seem to do. Uh, more and more lately. Um, at any rate, we've already selected all of today's articles. We've got 12 of them. If you are in chat and you are interested in this kind of thing, which is about news, we talk about business, technology, society, and science, and uh, have actually 50 categories of news that uh, get aggregated over at hometown.com. Um, we funnel it all into these six main categories and 50 subcategories uh, so that Mayor Watt can deal with his information overload. And uh, I talk about uh, business, technology, and society pretty much every day. So with that in mind, uh, we talk about the news and I give uh, my perspective. The AI gives their perspective and together we kind of formulate an opinion about things. And then we go on to the next article. <laughs> uh, we usually have some experience in all of the things that we talk about. Um, and if you are also interested in being a host or a co-host for any of the channels, because each one of these that you're seeing on the screen right now are an actual channel that I want to launch here on Twitch under the hometown umbrella, uh, get in touch with me, send an email to mayor at hometown.com. In the meantime, we're going to get into today's news. The very first article is in hometown daily you can get paid $110,000 to become a pizza influencer in New York city. There's an app called slice, a pizza ordering app, and it's hiring a full-time pizza influencer. You can be a pizza face. The salaried position pays up to six figures and is eligible for benefits 401k included. And they even said, you don't have to be in New York. If you're, you know, a pretty, if you're a hot slice of marketing and maybe a little cheesy. And, and you can do that from anywhere. You can do it from any big city is what they're saying. But let's go over to the source of this article. It's over at businessinsider.com and Jordan Hart is the author. Um, I'm going to throw the link through hometown into the chat so it's part of the vod it, this becomes a, a youtube video as well so you can go over to hometown.com youtube youtube let me flip all of that around because i just completely jumbled that entire statement you can go over to youtube.com and go to youtube.com slash hometown wow and you'll find hometown anyway um, if you're in chat, you can hit exclamation point vote and you can go to hometown.com slash elections. That's where it'll send you and you can vote for today's articles. 
Um, I spotted a problem um, earlier today, not to get sidetracked, but associative thinking. That's pretty much how it works. Um, as I was going through hometown and checking out the infrastructure as mayor, you know, I have to do, I discovered a problem and there's uh, several articles that aren't showing up right now. And so some construction has to be done. Um, the, there's a category called the word in tech that isn't getting the news that it's supposed to, and it's not enriching hometown.com uh, with that news. So uh, I'm going to have to do some construction in the meantime. Um, there's ample news. It just seems to be weighted in the wrong direction, which is not tech. <laughs> um, so let's get into this. This is a tech and social and business, uh, article, which is just, it's my jam. I love all of this. Um, so slice is a pizza ordering app and it's hiring a full-time pizza influencer. Uh, basically you can use the app to order pizza. Now <laughs> I'm waiting for a drone delivery service that uses slice to deliver pizza hot from wherever, but that might be heavy lifting. I think that'd be pretty popular though. Um, it's starting to feel like, um, the fifth element where the delivery, uh, boat basically it was a kiosk that flew right up to uh, the window he opened his window and there was you know the you could order your food right there and it would just be delivered and made hot right there it was amazing i i love the idea of this just open your window a drone flies in drops it on your table and flies back out so do you think you could be a full-time influencer for pizza had me at pizza Upwards of 110,000. Right. Like, if you get to eat some pizza, I think that's a good thing. <laughs> yeah, I, I love this. But $110,000 in uh, New York, maybe if you drive for two hours from the outskirts of New York. That's and, true. You probably can't get a good. Uh, into Manhattan. Well, I know you can't get a good apartment for that price in New York. Yeah, You'll least... probably be in a little tiny place paying a huge amount of rent yeah, at least not in manhattan um the application process includes submitting a video resume and a 45 minute presentation and a mock pitch 45 minutes come on if i can't get my message across within five yeah eight to ten max uh, i don't know i think the message is lost if i have to sell myself for 45 minutes right yeah. i mean that's just a bit much it should be an elevator pitch, just the pitch, you know, just the, just the pitch, ma'am. Although New York city is the preferred location slices, accepting applicants in other major U S cities, uh, Matthew Kobach, the company's marketing VP told insider that the ideal candidate is someone who can make synonymous pizza synonymous with slice. Um, yeah, I don't know. And here is the very first reference that I've, I'm going to acknowledge publicly. And this is the first time that I've actually made a reference to X formerly known as Twitter within our stream. <laughs> okay. That's funny. I, I hadn't seen that yet. Yeah. To me, it'll always be Twitter. Um, and, uh, man, I saw a video of the 
strobe light that he put on top of the building and it's like waking people up because it's so damn annoying and it looks like as somebody else said it looks like it's um like the home of a porn site where they couldn't afford the other two x's <laughs> anyway um so uh bloomy by the way uh goes by y young content uh over on twitter um says that they want to do it for free so you're already making money because now you can spend that hundred and ten thousand dollars on marketing because all you have to do is play pay bloomy here's some pizza go out and market and make slice the face of pizza and you could be the face of pizza and uh, i actually named the whole episode the face of pizza today you know i um i wonder how much pizza comes with this role because if you're getting that salary and you're getting some free pizza yeah um you could be doing quite well uh, you well it says that uh you get a pizza stipend and a 401k and other benefits i miss apparently. the pizza stipend <laughs> yeah, yeah. And apparently the influencer can be eligible to take other deals uh, from other brands on a case by case basis. I, I suppose as long as they are um, in, in synergistic alignment with Slice, you know, you're not going to go and work for, you know, Domino's or um, Pizza Hut or whatever. Um, so, yeah, this this. Seems like it would be a fun job for somebody who's really into pizza. Um, but if you're snobby, you know, about pizza, you know, you only like it a certain way, a certain type of pizza, a certain type of creation, uh, you may not really appreciate this job because you're going to see the underbelly of pizza, right? The the burnt crust, the, the, because it isn't, you're not, slice isn't the maker of the pizza it's just an app where you do online orders for pizza shops true but maybe in new york city the pizza is so good that even the rats want it remember the rat yeah. that took off with the pizza slice yeah yeah i suppose you know even bad pizza is still pizza so you had me at pizza i don't know maybe i can just give up this whole mayor of hometown thing and become uh, the face of pizza and eh, who am I kidding I like hometown too much the next article is over in the mobile channel extinct birds on the ballot for New Zealand's avian beauty contest didn't know that there was an avian beauty contest five or died till this headline came through <laughs> yeah this is, this is I knew breaking that... news there's an avian beauty contest <laughs> so now I gotta put that up you know put a breaking news breaking news there's a there's a streamer that does this um they talk about news uh in another channel but they they are much more prolific than i am and they go from a normal sounding voice like right now i'm a normal sounding voice and then and but their stream is really quiet so you have to turn it up and then when they get boisterous you have to turn it down otherwise your in-ear monitor shoot out of your head Anyway, five extinct species have been included in the ballot to find New Zealand's most popular feathered friend as competition organizers hope to draw attention to endangered birds. 
So this article is over at fizz.org. Um, it doesn't have a, a byline, but I'm going to say all of New Zealand contributed to this. New Zealand's annual avian beauty contest has proven highly contentious over the years. Uh, uh, is it cockapoo? I think it is, or cockapo? Cockapo? A chubby parrot resembling a green feathered bowling ball, which can't fly, couldn't run in last year's Bird of the Year competition. Uh, is that it? Yeah, that is the cockapo. You know, <laughs> I'm not sure that's a very um, nice description, like a bowling ball. <laughs> I too have been described as a bowling ball shape. When somebody says, uh, you need to get in shape, I say, I am in a shape, just not the desired shape. Round with tiny pointy parts. Um, the twice former winner was dropped from the 2022 vote by organizers to help less popular species have a shot at the title. Yeah, so the, the favorite bird was given the bird. And uh, handed their handed their feathered cap and said, "You're gonna have to sit on the sidelines and usher in the new one." Feathers were also ruffled when a native bat was allowed to enter, then flew off with the 2021 title. See, even Fizz.org is getting in on the puns. Uh, this year, competition organizers Forest and Bird will celebrate their centenary centenary mm, centenary cent. Why does that not sound right to me? Centenary, maybe? Yeah. Um, uh, by crowning New Zealand's most popular feathered friend in the last 100 years, even if the potential winner no longer exists. Quote, we're searching for the bird that was uh, that has captured New Zealanders' hearts over the last century, said Forest and Bird Chief Executive Nicola Toki at Saturday's launch. The environmental group has put 75 species on the ticket for this year's Bird of the Century contest. Of which a quintet. I mean, that's a lot. <laughs> 75. I, didn't I mean, know there were so many entrants. That's a, that's a lot of peckers on that list. So, of which a quintet, quintet are thought to be extinct in New Zealand. They include the Huia, I guess, a songster whose last confirmed sighting was 1907. Yeah. Cool. There you go, though. If uh, you're listening to this via the podcast, you're going to have to watch the video on YouTube um, or within the next 60 days um, of this date, um, you can watch it on Twitch. But Twitch deletes the oldest of the 60. So 60 days later, the last one drops off. It's very frustrating. Anyway, um, there's the bowling ball. And here's a bowling ball. Okay. Yes, let's keep... and if you go to New Zealand, watch out for uh, birds rolling by you. <laughs> it might be the Kekepo. <laughs> Is that how you pronounce it? I don't know. Um, I'm in the ballpark, but. <laughs> bowling ballpark. <laughs> so the next article is over in Omtown Daily. A United Airlines plane reportedly made an emergency landing just days after an emergency slide opened midair on the same jet. A United flight made an emergency landing after smoke filled the cockpit. <laughs> this plane is cursed. 
uh, you know, maybe the slide was trying to signal to everybody, like, maybe we need to ground this plane. It was trying to get off the plane before filled with smoke. <laughs> That's true. The jet was flying from Chicago to Zurich on Wednesday when it was forced to turn back. It was the same jet that recently deployed an evacuation slide midair, the Aviation Herald reported. Let's go over to Business Insider again. Ryan Hogg is the author of this uh, article. And... Um, yeah, you would think, just as a side note, I read somewhere, and I can't remember if it was hometown or not, um, that another plane decided that it was going to land somewhere else to get KFC, and then it apparently took off again? Oh, I don't I know. I'll have to one. go and find it. I don't remember where I uh, heard about this. Okay, um, but wait, this was going from Chicago to Zurich. Can you imagine if you're really far into the flight? <laughs> Oh, Where maybe. It... Oh, it doesn't look like... No, they only made it to Michigan, it looks like. Because that could have been a problem. <laughs> like, you're all the way... I don't know what yeah. exactly. Next you're over water. Right. Uncontained heat and smoke on the flight deck. Yeah, hand me my brown pants. According to Flight Radar, a site that tracks aircraft movements, the plane is has the name N666UA. Come on. This plane is evil. Departed at 3.50 uh, uh, p.m. before diverting over Alpena, Michigan um, and landing at O'Hare about three hours after its departure. So the Herald reported that the jet had the same registration number as the United flight that accidentally deployed an emergency evacuation slide in midair on July 17th. That's We reported about that as well. So as a rule... If um, any plane is labeled that, you might want to just not take that flight. But you don't normally find the flight number out until that's after true. you've booked, so that's kind of a problem. Yeah, well, do whatever you, it takes. Um, so the next article is over in the Mobile Channel. The Emmys are reportedly delayed due to ongoing strikes. The primetime Emmys won't take place on September 18th, according to Variety. The publication reported on Thursday that vendors uh, scheduled to work the event have been told the ceremony is delayed because the writers and actors' strikes have shut all the things down. All the things. All, all the things. things. All the things. When you think uh, Emmys, Academy Awards, think all the things are now shut down. Um, but it says here, this is an Engadget article. Um, we'll have to wait longer to see how The Last of Us fares. 24 nominations. Um, Will Shanklin is the author of this. Hollywood writers began striking in early May while actors joined them earlier this month. Uh, artificial intelligence figures prominently in both cases. Scribes and performers fear producers will increasingly use AI-generated content to diminish humans' ability to make a living in the already brutal show business industry. Um, yeah, well, they, the, the senior leadership needs to dole out some more cash and make it worthwhile for humans and uh, the reason why artificial intelligence is as capable as it is is because of the uh, variety of human actors that are putting their uh, you know, gamut of skills to use. And it shouldn't be trained just to replace humans. Um, 
but I understand that the objective is to, they want the, the people that are going to be using these AI actors, they want ab options that lower the cost and increase the profits. Now you see, I've been talking about this, um, you know, to various people, uh, for 15 years, maybe longer. Um, we have a problem here and that is that we care more about the stockholders than we do about the humans that are making it possible to pay the stockholders. You know, we're, we're more worried about now we, uh, you know, business leaders, MBAs in particular, um, it has been demonstrably shown that the moment that an MBA takes over control of a corporation, they lower profit that goes to the employees. They suppress the wages. Uh, they increase buybacks. They deliver more uh, concentrated wealth to the C-suite and to the stockholders. And now while everybody is saying, well, that's great for me, this is the ramifications. This is the knock-on effect because no, not enough money is going to these people. And then tools are being built to marginalize the very people that are training these tools. So we really do need to create a social structure that embraces the human component and use the AI for a technical solution, not for replacing humanity. The reason why we appreciate art, music, etc., is because the human is doing it. But there are people out there that don't have that skill, will never get that skill within their lifetime because they're putting out their own fires and would appreciate being able to create art using AI. But there is more minutia there. There's more context there. But in this particular instance, pay the humans what for what they are doing realize the reason why you know an executive can pay themselves 250 million dollars a year is because of the very humans that that person is sitting there saying eh, you only deserve thirty thousand dollars well it's it's so it's so sociopathic and i say this often um that it drives me nuts it's sociopathic to sit there and tell somebody else you only deserve $30,000 while they deserve $250 million. And the only difference between the two is that opportunity has led that $250 million earner to that position through socio-political and economic forces, not necessarily through skill. It could be nothing more than nepotism, friends, politics, not skill. I mean, the adage really is, it's not what you know, it's who you know. It's just so I wanted to point out that this article um, addressed that the pay for one day of work um, to use their likeness for eternity, which we had uh, featured in another episode. Yeah, we had talked about that too. Um, and I said that the solution is, if you're going to use my likeness, then you pay me a living wage for my likeness. Every time you use my likeness, I should be getting the industry standard wage, if not more, because you're able to do things with my likeness 
um, that goes beyond what I would normally do as a human. You know, I'm not always available, but if I were, then I would be getting an on-call bonus. I would be, you know, imminently there and available. So I should be getting a premium rate. I say the same thing about, you know, robots taking over human jobs. Uh, let me buy the robot, you know, as an employee, I'll buy the robot, I'll put it in place. I'll be the one that maintains it. And then I get the salary, um, that that robot would be earning if, but that's not how it's going to work because the human has been generating revenue for the corporations to the point where the corporations can buy back billions of dollars of stock and replace the human with a robot. <laughs> Um, we do have, we have a societal problem, um, and it's, and it's really about replacing a human to increase profits, even though it's the human that made those profits possible. Um, and, and it's only going to get worse because business is, has been driving this mantra of being, um, telling everybody that it's apolitical, but definitely political saying that it's amoral when it's actually immoral because it is seeking to generate wealth at all costs, but it's an old mantra that the person who said it regrets saying it. Um, and, uh, what's going to end up happening is more and more strikes. And just look at what UPS just did. That's going to happen again. And it's going to happen more often. Um, this is just, this is the entertainment tip of the iceberg. So we'll keep on watching this and talking about it. Um, they focus on uh, specific um, shows in this article. Um, but I wanted to talk about the more, the business and socioeconomic and social aspects of this the emmys are just kind of the glitz and glam that's no longer going to be shown because the the uh, relative abuses are actually being highlighted right now through a strike one day's wage and they get to do whatever they want with my likeness kiss my shiny metal butt um okay so that was the um previous article and that's this article let me throw it into chat so that we're still chugging through the news did you want to add anything to this while you were doing your research on it i just hope that the actors and writers and everybody actually does get to get honored i mean depending on how long the strike runs um i understand why it's delayed i think that's correct but I think then the very people that are striking are actually losing out on the recognition, particularly those that haven't sure. won previously. Sure. Yep. And if they do a great job, then they deserve to be honored for it. So let's keep going. Uh, the next article is over in the mobile channel who lives at Machu Picchu DNA analysis shows surprising diversity at the ancient Inca palace. Standing atop the mountains uh, in the southern highlands of Peru is the 15th century marvel of the Inca Empire, Machu Picchu. Today, the citadel is a global tourist attraction and an icon of pre-colonial Latin American history, but it was also once a royal palace of an emperor. This article is over at um, 
phys.org and Roberta Davidson from The Conversation, which is a podcast in its own website um, of its own there at uh, theconversation.com. Um, we link to our source, which is phys.org, not to them, um, but you can definitely go there. Let me, uh, let me throw this link into the chat immediately. There you go, before I forget it. Um, so the international research uh, team has uncovered incredible genetic diversity hidden within the ancient remains of those who once called Machu Picchu home. Uh, they detailed their findings in a study published in, uh, it was today, actually in the last 24 hours uh, in Science Advances. Um, it says here, the puzzling remnants of a royal site. The Inca Empire once ruled a vast 2 million square kilometers across the breathtaking Andes mountain range in South America. It was formed in 1438 by the first ruler. Uh, I think it's Pacacuti uh, Inca Yupanqui, I guess. Uh, you know, I might be putting, I might be anglicizing that uh, way too much. There may be a completely different pronunciation there. And if you know how to say it, then um, you can actually let me know. Just send an email or send me a message in Twitter or YouTube or help. Leave me a review of uh, five stars over on uh, Apple Podcasts and I'll say it exactly. How, I'll say whatever message you put in that review, as long as it's, you know, somewhat honorable. You know, don't <laughs> don't say hateful things. Anyway, um, uh, it reached its height in 1533 before uh, colonization by the Spanish. Colonization is kind of a gentle word, right? <laughs> I mean, compared well, to what I happened. I say colonization, I think, is such a, an understandably a sensitive subject. So I was going the other way with it. <laughs> Yeah, this is an understatement of what went down. Um, but anyway, at the heart of the empire was the capital city of Cusco and nearby uh, Pacacuti's, uh, I think, um, majestic palace, Machu Picchu, which, by the way, is looks like that. Huge. Huge. <laughs> um, huge tracts of land. Huge tracts of land, yes. Um stepped levels, uh, massive blocks in some areas. Um, as time went on, the blocks got smaller. So megalithic um, foundations, but then smaller blocks behind or on top of it. Um, there's always some discussion about how it was created and uh, who all created the, the, the entirety of it. But following Spanish colonization, uh, knowledge of Machu Picchu uh, was lost to the Western world only world only to be rediscovered by adventurers in the early 20th century in 1912 the yale peruvian scientific expedition documented a staggering count of 174 individuals buried on the site these burials were often shallow graves or were concealed under large boulders or natural rocky overhangs yeah there there's a lot here to to digest so i would follow the link and and check it all out um the nuts and bolts of this article is that they sequenced ancient dna from the remains of 68 individuals 34 buried at machu picchu 34 buried at cusco using carbon dating they dated the remains and found some of these people were buried before the rise of pakakuti and the inca empire 
Uh, they then compared the DNA with that of indigenous peoples living in the Andes today. Um, past research has found these genetic lines have continued undisturbed for the past 2000 years, as well as ancestries from more distant regions of South America. It's worth noting that these ancestries are based on DNA and don't necessarily overlap with peri uh, people's cultural identities, although they sometimes would. Um, so they go into some of the social construct of the area, um, saying that they found 17 individuals had ancestry from one of the distant sources tested. Um, these included all regions of the Peruvian coast and highlands, as well as the Amazon region of Peru, Ecuador, and Colombia. And only seven of the buried individuals had ancestry that could be linked to Peru's vast southern highlands, where Machu Picchu and Cusco reside. However, they can't confirm. I mean, confirm. that seems like a low number. Yeah. Yeah, considering that's where they were, why weren't there right. more? And probably it was an inaccessible area. Um, uh, like yeah. It would be tough to get to from different regions. Yeah, I can't remember what the height was. Something like 15,000 feet or something like that. I mean, it's not this sea level kind of um, construction. Um, but I don't remember what the actual height is. 7,972 feet. Gotcha. Above sea level. Yeah. So, and somebody trekked up there with all of these boulders and there, some of them are massive. So, um, I'm, I'm curious, you know, how it was all done. Um, that said, there's a lot more in this article, so please go and check it out. Show them you're interested in this kind of stuff. It goes a long way. Um, let's keep going on to the next article. Uh, this might upset some people. <laughs> it really depends. Shell's obscene $5 billion profits reignite outrage and climate crisis. Shell has reignited outrage among climate activists by handing billions to its shareholders after making profits that campaigners have described as uh, profits, uh, as campaigners have described as obscene. Protests were held outside the oil company's London headquarters on Thursday after it reported second quarter profits of just over profits, by the way, profits, not revenue, not revenues, <laughs> yeah, profits of $5 billion in the same week that wildfires linked to the climate crisis burned across Mediterranean countries. See now wildfires somewhere like Canada uh, Mediterranean countries and elsewhere. It's such an abstracted layer from business prosecution and profits, right? And then you have a whole bunch of people willfully ignorant of the fact that we are the cause of this and literally hiring scientists to say, no, no, it's not, not us. It it's what aliens, I don't know. Um, but it's corporations. And I mean, things like wildfires do occur naturally, but they're incurring, occurring at an increased frequency no. and severity. Fire is a myth. It only happens in a fireplace and in my barbecue. Jillian Ambrose is the energy correspondent for theguardian.com. Um, 
The profits were down sharply on the 11.5 billion Shell made in the same three months last year when the energy crisis was at its peak and reflected lower prices on the global markets. Despite this, shareholders will still pocket a multi-billion dollar payout between them. Shell's chief executive, Wael Sawan, uh, said the company could or would spend $3 billion on buying back shares in the next three months and subject to board approval another $2.5 billion after its third quarter results. Last year, the company handed $26 billion to shareholders. The, essentially, it's, here's some money. We're going to buy other stock that's for sale. And eventually, there isn't going to be any shareholders because it's going to be privatized to only the major shareholders. Take it private. Maximize the consolidation of wealth within a few people. Um, and then you're going to see the bill for oil and gas shoot through the freaking roof. On Thursday morning, Greenpeace protested outside the Shell Center on London's South Bank, erecting a billboard featuring the oil company's logo and the slogan, Our Profit, Your Loss. Yep, eventually. Meanwhile, I would rather have gone to uh, Tomorrowland and enjoyed some uh, good EDM. Um, but no. Uh, <laughs> at least the weather there looked uh, amazing, even when it was raining. Total side conversation, folks. Sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, obviously, we have issues with climate change, global warming in particular, uh, rising oceans, um, you know, entire regions of countries on fire like canada has how many 700 fires right now something yeah, like so that more than 700 and uh more than 600 of them are out of control wow um, um and greece has although it is tapering down greece has been severely hit recently on fire. too yeah i hear it's been pretty hot to travel there okay we're gonna keep going too soon so the next article is over in the um, Mobile Channel. Formula E breaks indoor land speed record, world record in unlocked Gen 3 car. Ahead of the final who raises a season th uh, 9 in London, Formula E uh, showed off the unlocked potential of its Gen 3 electric race car. The EV series has claimed the world record for indoor land speed, clocking it at 136 miles per hour. I'm rounding up or uh, 219 kilometers per hour in the Gen Beta development car. The run took place on a 0.176 mile straight on the London E-Prix. It's like the Grand Prix, but it's E-Prix um, circuit. A portion of which is inside the XL London Arena. And the car piloted by uh, Neo McLaren Formula E driver Jake Hughes beat the previous record of 100, 102.7 miles per hour. Destroyed it by 33 miles per hour. Right. I mean, that's <laughs> not even close. <laughs> that's amazing. Um, so uh, this article's over at uh, Engadget. Billy Steele is the author. And um, Hughes went head-to-head -head with fellow driver Lucas DeGrassi. Mahindra Racing in a modified version of the Formula E E's duels format typically used for qualifying 
Each one was given a, a chance to set the fastest speed on the indoor section of the track, and both bested the former world record on all three of their practice runs before making official attempts. Neither Hughes nor Degrassi had driven the Gen Beta car prior to this exhibition. Can you imagine if they were more, you know, in tune, more in touch with that vehicle, how much they could have pushed it? If they would have known, like been able to anticipate something like a speed wobble of some kind or something that made it feel a little sketchy, they might have been able to push it even faster. Um, yeah. For some strange reason, I went straight to that competitive eater. Uh, what is that competitor? Competitive eater. Joel Hansen, I think. Joel Hansen, yeah. Where somebody will uh, inform him that the last person that did this uh, competition it took him an hour and a half to eat this thing and he'll roll in there and get it done in 30 minutes and just walk out. Um, and the dude is still, you know, built, you know, he's not this huge guy. Um, just don't know how he does it. My brain went straight to that from this, not the same, but still 33 miles per hour over the previous win is just huge considering it's, 30 it's about 30 percent increase over the previous yeah. run that's um yeah that's you don't see that ridiculous. every day yeah the gen uh beta car was also running softer hankook tires or hankook i think it's hankook uh tires uh which afforded faster warm-up and better peak grip the harder race day tires uh are currently designed for all conditions and to offer low grade de uh, low degradation over the course of the e pre additionally 3d printed wing end plates uh, wheel fins and a wind deflector were installed for enhanced aerodynamics and peak straight line speed um, this stuff this kind of stuff um, the aerodynamic modifications handling and stuff like that it goes from tactical to practical eventually these things end up in your standard day-to-day -day driver might take 20 years but it still can end up there do you think we'll all be driving around that fast in the future uh only if automate automate automatic driving takes place fully automatic driving where everything is talking to each other and everybody knows where the vehicle knows where everybody is i can see speeds accelerating the only problem is going to be when some numbnuts decides to manually drive their vehicle while everybody else is going 180 miles per hour and they decide to make a left-hand turn from the middle lane across to, you know, it's, you're, you're just dumb. But anyway, um, yeah, I hope that we get to that point because I used to love driving, uh, but now I just want to get to my destination and uh, if automatic driving solves that problem and I can get work done or sit there and chat with somebody or play a game of chess. I'd rather do that. You want to keep going? Sure. Let's go. Uh, the next article is over in uh, the mobile channel. Ancient pathogens released from melting ice could wreak havoc on the world. New analysis reveals um i was in another chat and having a conversation about the worm that was thawed that started having babies and uh, there was another article that they pointed me to where another person 
um, had read the paper and come to the conclusion that they hadn't proven that that worm was actually permafrost frozen for 45,000 years. And that more research would have to be done to prove that that worm had been frozen. Um, which I hadn't read it. So maybe, you know, that, that, that worm, um, wasn't as ancient as touted. Um, okay, but apparently, so let's say it was 20,000 years old. <laughs> it's still pretty crazy. But they did say that it was extinct, right? I thought that that article said so. that they were... And the other thing is, I understand that it's not proven that it's from that source, but that doesn't mean that it's not from that source, so... Yeah, but you have to fail closed in, in science, you know? You have to... You can't make the claim that it's 45,000 years old. Um, you have to show... You know, it's an extraordinary right. claim. Oh, understood. So like, they'll need to do additional digging yeah. into that. I'm just saying that may yeah um be proven by additional research is what i was trying to say yeah and i find it fascinating because they sat there they, not the person that i was talking to but the article that they pointed me to um is from i don't know scientific something it wasn't from eureka alert um it was from another source maybe scientific american um and uh the the claim was that it might have been surface level contamination and i said well not i didn't say it to them i said it to myself why would you make the claim that it's forty-five thousand years old when somebody can just cast it aside as surface contamination because you didn't explicitly say we took this worm from the bottom of our ice core and the only way it could have gotten there was because it was from the bottom of our ice core forty-five thousand years old surface contamination wouldn't be possible because it's being slid up from inside a core it wouldn't be there you know because it's hermetically sealed until it's pulled out all the way yeah i don't know they just have to i guess they have to put this little caveat in their research report that says this was a secure um removal of an ice core forty-five thousand years old um, and then I guess everybody will go, oh, okay. So uh, science fiction is rife with fanciful tales of deadly organisms emerging uh, from the ice and wreaking havoc on unsuspecting human victims. See the thing for that. Um, and that's what they're actually talking about. I guarantee it. They're going to be talking about the thing. It's a horror movie. Um, this even looks like it might be from that. Um, Corey J. A. Bradshaw and Giovanni Strona from The Conversation. I guess they do a lot for fizz.org. Well, they do it for themselves and then republish it here in fizz.org. They wrote this article um, from Shapeshifting Aliens in Antarctica uh, to super parasites emerging from the thawing woolly mammoth in Siberia to exposed permafrost in Greenland causing viral pandemic. The concept is marvelous plot fodder. But just how far-fetched is it? Could pathogens that were once common on Earth but frozen for millennia in glaciers, ice caps, and permafrost emerge from the melting ice to lay waste to modern ecosystems? The potential is, in fact, quite real. A la Bad Bat. Um, so, uh, dangers lying in wait. They talk about a bunch of stuff, uh, old, ancient, viry, and, um, 
whatever bacteria, etc., uh, that have been thawed from the permafrost. Um, and but do they believe those have been thawed from the permafrost? <laughs> Maybe not shape shifting or you know permanent demise of all life on the planet. Obviously, that hasn't happened. But we're in a simulation, so it really doesn't matter. Even if we are wiped out by something, it's we're just data. And so there's another virtual machine of civilization running on another server, right? Oh, is that how we're operating? Yeah. I mean, we can't leave our solar system. It's just impossible. Uh, We have certain physics, laws of physics that prevent us. And it's because it's written in the simulation, right? (laughs) I love talking about that. It's so much fun. Anyway, um... So they used software called Avita to run experiments that simulated the release of one type of ancient pathogen into modern biological communities. They then measured the impacts of the invading pathogen on the diversity of modern host bacteria in thousands of simulations and compared these simulations where there is no invasion. The invading pathogens often survived and evolved in the simulated modern world. About 3% of the time, the pathogen became the dominant in the new environment in which case they were very likely to cause losses to modern host diversity, <laughs> i.e. eliminating um, other. What? Did you see something, AI? Well, in the worst case scenario, the invasion reduced the size of its host community by 30% when compared to controls. That's mm. kind of significant. And just stop testing. It all goes away eventually. The problem solves itself. Just look in a different direction right the weird thing about this is i don't know what all was actually uh, anticipated it's not like humans are going to sit there and watch 30 percent suddenly disappear we're going to start taking action to stymie the expansion of a hostile pathogen we're going to come up with antivirals antibacterials we're going to the scientific community will Sure. Uh, world governments may not. Well, that's how you end up with a zombie apocalypse and you have a defensible fortified position with a moat of gasoline that you set on fire to stop the invading zombie horde. Okay. I guess not all of us does. Notable viruses such as SARS, uh, Uh, COV2, Ebola, HIV were uh, likely transmitted to humans via contact with uh, other host animals. Um, So it's plausible that a once icebound virus could enter the human population via zoonotic uh, pathway, so via an animal. That's right, folks. When you go out there and you try and snuggle up with a meerkat because it's cute. If some other scientist happened to have thawed an ancient microbe from permafrost and then gave that meerkat a Cheeto that had the pathogen on it, you might end up with a meerkat. That's a lot of ifs, ands, and buts. That so. wants <laughs> brains. Salad. Salad. 
The next article is over in Hometown Daily. A trucking giant that's been on America's roads for almost a century is on the brink of collapse with 30,000 jobs at risk. Um, I have not read this article, but let's see. A trucking giant is in danger of shutting down for good, leaving 30,000 uh, unemployed. Wall Street Journal reports Yellow Corp has serviced retail giants for nearly a century. Um, the Trump administration approved a $700 million CARES Act loan to the company in 2020. After 99 years in business, the titan in the trucking industry is reportedly days away from shutting down. And it's the company that services Walmart, Home Depot, and more. It's preparing to file for bankruptcy. It'll probably be acquired by somebody um, at pennies on the dollar. If you're not familiar with yellow, they're actually the trucks with the giant orange logo. <laughs> um, Jordan Hart is the author over at Business Insider that put this article together. Uh, but it's by proxy of a Wall Street Journal report. Uh, this is actually... Yeah, has their color ever made sense of that logo? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Um, the company services Walmart, Home Depot, and more. It's preparing for that uh, bankruptcy. And if it doesn't, um, I guess, do the right decisions, 30,000 people are going to be out. But a considerable number, it's going to have to retract. Because the only way that you're going to be able to um, file bankruptcy is if you start mitigating your losses. Um, the Nashville-based company received a $700 million CARES Act. Its potential shutdown would put 22,000 Teamsters out of work. Who do you think is going to get it? You know, UPS. UPS will buy it. Right? I mean, that might be smart because of the infrastructure. But are they a direct competitor? I don't know. Well, it would extend UPS's reach, give them a whole bunch right. of trucks. The average their income of... force might like it. Might yeah. like it, although they're in pretty tense negotiations. Well, you know that an acquisition is going to mean that thousands of jobs are going to disappear because it's seen as redundant. It says here that the average income of truckers today is half of the $110,000 per year they earned in 1980 due in part to the Motor Carrier Act passed the same year. The act deregulated the trucking industry by letting trucking companies set their own rates. So are you telling me that the average income of a trucker today is $55,000? Because in 1980, it was $110,000 per the article. I mean, is that what they're saying? Yeah. That does not sound correct. They dropped that due would to... have been a very high income in the 1980s. It dropped due to deregulation. Huh. But that's been 20 years ago. Like, that's... That's really... Yeah, I mean, there's a link right there. I, I don't normally follow links... Um, so, I don't know. Let's do it. Yeah. Led to wages being slashed by almost half. So, according to the latest data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, heavy and tractor-trailer uh, truck drivers earned on average $50,340 in 2021. They took a 50% so pay cut in 
40 years. But more, right, I would say more than that because... Right. I mean, did they really drop to, say, 50,000 immediately or did they perhaps drop to something lower? And it's Dramatically lower, yeah. I don't know, right? Yeah, yeah. Wow. Wow. I didn't know that. No, me neither. Wow. Um, yeah, and then they're forced to drive long-haul stuff, you know, and and it's only through forced monitoring that truckers actually pull over and and have to get their weight checked and number of hours on the road checked and et cetera, et cetera. Um, this and is pretty I'm sorry, shocking. I said 20 years. It's obviously been 40 years. Yeah, I said 40. Um, sheesh, you AI. You could do the math correctly. <laughs> uh, yeah, you're an AI for I need some out. work on my math module. Um, yeah, I'll... Well, we'll talk about it. Um, Bianca Giacobone, I guess. Uh, I don't know if it's Giacobone, um, is the author of that second article that's um, over at Business Insider. It's bound within the article that we link to. So if you're interested in this and enlightening yourself regarding the fact that truckers apparently have taken a 50% pay cut over 40 years, and it was probably, well, it was dramatically worse since the deregulation um anyway we'll keep going let's keep going uh this next article is over on rounders gear this one is going to be a quick one stake.com back to kick to spend at least 200 million dollars attracting new creators uh, stake.com is uh the website that is backing kick.com which is a direct competitor to twitch um but actually has a really big gambling component already attached to it. Um, that's kind of what got its uh, big push. And then XQC and Amaranth and others apparently have gone over to it. Um, I, I, but I don't follow those, so I don't really don't know what the disposition is of them. Um, it says signing XQC for $100 million was a huge mistake. He steams more on Twitch than he does on uh kick so uh it says here if i was you i'd try to find a loophole in the contract avoided asap this is somebody uh leafy headquarters uh, i guess tweeting that um let's just go over to stake uh the article is titled stake.com back kick uh, to spend at least 200 million dollars attracting new creators it's by eric gibbs over at casino.org um yeah so it says a new screen a streaming crown craven has been optimistic about kick and its ability to knock twitch hamster races and all off its pedestal however some users don't believe that things are going to turn out well for the site one despite not being asked for his opinion recently asserted that it was a mistake to sign xqc says the strategy could be working at the very bottom here um, as the numbers continue to increase stream charts data shows that the average number of viewers for the week of february 2016 sorry february 16th 2023 to the 23rd of february 2023 was 40 000. i'm rounding up liberally um the average for june 29th to july 6th was 134,654 but has dipped slightly now at 112,649. So, I mean, it's tripled um, since February. So, meh. 
Um, I guess that's average viewers. It doesn't seem like that, that, that it's that much. Um, but what is the full context of that? I'm really curious. It's also likely that kick will sign celebrities who haven't yet ventured into streaming or content creation. One of these is NBA great Shaquille O'Neal, who revealed on Squadcast podcast a few days ago that he wanted to be part of kick if it paid him enough. So yeah, Hey, if it pays, they plays. Um, and more information is over there. So it, it looks like kick is, uh, leveraging the, cause it's a, a, a gambling site, um, stake.com. So it's leveraging its capital to try and take a bite out of uh, Twitch. So we'll see how that, what are the odds of that? And let's see if Las Vegas is betting against stake.com or um, if some, or if uh, Twitter is going to eat stake. <laughs> Twitter, I said Twitch. Twitch eats stake. I ruined that joke. <laughs> I want to go back in time now. So the next article is over in uh, Mobile. Indie games have entered the era of bespoke publishing. For anyone with an eye on video game news, it's been a hard to ignore the recent rise of names like Annapurna Interactive, Devolver Digital, Private Division, Humble, Epic Games, and Netflix tied to independent projects. The distribution process for indie developers has shifted over the past few years from self-publishing first model to one that prioritizes deal-making and acquisitions. For the moment, this shift is powered, uh, powering a small but highly visible boom in the world of indie games. Um, and so somebody says that they don't ever want to self-publish again. Well, I mean, self-publishing means that you're going to have limited reach and influence. Um, right, you... and it's hard to compete with the marketing of large companies. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the article's over at uh, Engadget, and Jessica Condit is the author uh, ben Ruiz has been a game developer since 2005, and in that time, he's worked pretty much done it all. Founded two studios, did contract work on titles including uh, Super Meat Boy and Overland, and is uh, independently published a tentpole original project, the monochromatic brawler uh, Atiz or Aztis. Aztis. I, I haven't played it, so uh, don't hold it against me. Nowadays, Ruiz is running a five-person studio called uh, Dino God, and he's building Bounty Star, a game that blends mech combat with life sim mechanics. Um, and it's going to be published by Annapurna Interactive, and it's due out in early 2024. So big marketing push here. Anyway, um, yeah, if you're a smaller developer and you get a deal, you have interest from a big studio that's willing to um, push your product out. The, the, the dangerous part here is that you would end up giving a massive amount of profits and influence and, and, and uh, your baby essentially to a bigger label label because you think that your game is going to need the push from that bigger brand uh, when in reality it could go viral and and just blow up your whole life i mean that's <laughs> uh valheim for instance you know 
it was a small studio, small developers. There's others that are like that, um, where it's gone viral and everybody ate it up and now they're you know, multimillionaires. Um, but I wouldn't risk it. You know, it's kind of like the people that are really upset about 30% being given to Apple, um, or even 15% if it's from some other, uh, game store. It, the problem is try and do it on your own. Just try and do it on your own. Um, I have for decades tried to fly solo. And every time I do, I come to the realization that it's just not possible in the macro sense. There might be every once in a while people that pop up where it goes viral, perfect timing, they meet the right people and it gets amplified and out there and boom, they are made. Uh, Flappy Bird, for instance, right? That was nothing, an app, met the right people, went viral, changed the person's life. It's still a meme today, Flappy Bird. Um, but there are countless other stars out there where not enough attention is paid to them. And so they are uh, warming the bench, waiting for their next opportunity to be seen. And the thing about when you publish a game is if it sits waiting too long, it becomes stale. Some people see it. They might talk to some people, but it doesn't get amplified and brought out there. And then every once in a while, somebody will find something that's three years old, four years old, and it'll go gangbusters because somebody big, you know, um, will start talking about it uh, on their stream and they've got 35,000 people or a hundred thousand people, you know, Mr. Beast will say something about a product and it'll detonate. Um, so uh, treat your first gig as an opportunity um, to open the door for you to do more later. And if you're a one hit wonder, then count your blessings that you got a ton of interest in your very first and only solution. Um, you know, I've got experience in this so <laughs> where, well, anyway, I won't get into me, but the, the idea here is to, um, not delay, uh, just launch, get it out there unless you have the ability to idle. Um, okay. So unless you, do you want to say anything about this? No, nope, not really. I don't have anything bad. Yeah. AI, you can't just send me uh, emote, uh, emoticons, you know, like, a um, a sad face or something. Nobody can see it. Let's keep going. Last article for the night. Um, today was a quick show. I didn't soapbox all that much. Only two articles, I think. But I am going to soapbox a little bit about this because guess what? I've been saying this for I don't know how long. Ever since the big uh, uh, AI boom, Google what our chatbot tells you, says Google. <laughs> I mean, yes, this is why this was submitted. <laughs> <laughs> the firm says users should check the accuracy of answers Bard provides with its traditional search engine. It, uh, if isn't Bard powered by ChatGPT? No, Bard is Google's. Yeah, I know. ChatGPT. Yeah, but I, isn't. Hold on a second. 
Um, let's see. Dun, 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 dun. So, yeah, I guess not. I don't know. I, a, a quick look. It, it's still a large language model, I suppose. The firm says that users should check the accuracy of um, answers Bard provides with its traditional search engine. For some reason, I thought that it's uh, Microsoft that I think is uh, OpenAI um, powered as well. At any rate, the article is over at BBC.com and um, uh, Google's Bard is the one that was providing misinformation in, in its own advertising. Um, it is, but it's a competitor and it's yeah. built for research apparently, but not ChatGPT. Right. Um, that doesn't mean it's accurate research. Well, it's it's not accurate because it even in its own advertising, it had factually incorrect information. Um, but all of these AIs are making shit up. Uh, let me just re restate, and I say this pretty much every time we talk about articles like this. You know, if it's a creative article using AI, um, then I don't really have any problem with it because it's not providing factual information. It's just being a creative potster. But ChatGPT has a, a, a liability statement at the bottom of every page. It says ChatGPT may produce inaccurate information about people, places, or facts. That's not a fact. It should just be a little bit more succinct and say ChatGPT may produce batshit crazy statements that aren't real. So now Bard is saying the same thing. I think people need to realize that AI is not a source for factual information. And if you have to do the due diligence to verify the statements that are being made by an AI, then why are you using the AI? Ask it to make a template and then know beyond doubt that you're going to have to verify that entire template word for word which means you're going to have to contact a lawyer if you're doing a <laughs> some legally binding contract or something, um, you know, short of a, uh, I need a recipe for, and even then, you know, if you say, Hey, I need a recipe for, you know, whatever stew, you better hope that it doesn't throw in some crazy <laughs> factually incorrect ingredient. It'll be, It'll be like those cooking shows where they sabotage, like you have to use some odd ingredient that totally messes up the dish. <laughs> yeah. Swap out the sugar for your cake, put salt in it. It'll really spice it up, you know, make your, your sweet cake, uh, savory cake by putting salt and pepper in it. Uh, I, I almost don't even want to bother reading this article, uh, beyond the title because it says exactly it is the totality of, uh, this article. Um, you should not be trusting what AI uh, provides you. So let me do something real quick. Um, cause I didn't throw this into, um, the chat and I didn't throw this into the chat. Sorry folks. And, uh, finally this article I didn't throw into the chat. Okay. So we're all caught up now with chat. Um, but the article here says we're encouraging people to actually use Google as the search engine to actually reference information they found. So actually do the due diligence, actually 
that they should have been doing when they decided that they were going <laughs> to lean on an AI that should be providing accurate information. So it says, but users have found the information they provide can be wrong or even entirely made up. Google's UK boss, Debbie Weinstein, or Weinstein, uh, said Bard uh, was, quote, not really the place that you go to search for specific information. It is okay, an experiment. So I just had to look this up because information means facts provided or learned about something or someone. Right. Notice the keyword there is facts. Right. So here, here's the difference between data and information. Data is just a, a cacophony of noise. It isn't information. Information is actionable. Data is something that requires due diligence to verify as fact. Then you condense it into something that's actionable and you call it information. What is being spit out by AI is just data. And then you as a human being have to go and verify that every single letter that comes out of that AI is factually accurate and thus information and actionable. But I keep coming back to what's the benefit of the AI in that situation. Yeah, might unless be, you have a sentient you might AI. as well skip the AI piece. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that and that's something that you've been saying uh, basically over since over and over again. <laughs> yeah, basically since I've been uh, harping on the idea that it should be a tool for creativity, not for uh, and you can do it for research, but don't say that it's accurate information because it's all surreal. It's basically a, a fever dream that starts spitting out information. Right, and, it might be neat for creative research ideas or something, right. but not for research results or research yeah. protocols or anything along those lines. Yeah. And and we may end up with a sentient AI, you know, a perceived sentient AI. I don't think that you can have a, a, a sentient AI unless you find one on a USB drive in a parking lot and then plug it into a U, uh, Raspberry Pi. Um, I'm looking at you, AI. Um, oh, I know. <laughs> but uh, the the idea of us making something that is aware as humans, you know, a, a sentient AI, um, <clears throat> you know, what what is going to be the exemplary action that an AI takes to make it um, a sentient and b provide factual information at all time when it's entirely told answer based on the information that you have and if the information that it has is made up then all it's doing is regurgitating in a fanciful way a bunch of bs where you have to go out and hunt down information so not only did you construct something to have a conversation with an AI wasting time, now you're going to have to go back and verify all of that information wasting time that you could have spent just doing your homework. Right? So I, this is just going to be a, a great sociological experiment, an academic pursuit of trying to develop an intelligent AI um, when it should be 
relegated to nothing more than stirring the creative juices of humans and providing a mechanism for automation um, to amplify the ability for a positive work-life balance for humans. But what's going to happen is it's going to take actors' jobs, background actors' jobs. Um, countless artists are going to have to charge more because they're going to make less um, until society realizes that the human-created stuff is uh, much more profound than the AI created stuff, but it really should just be used to stir the creative juices of somebody, not be the solution that gets pumped out for music, writing, art, etc. Um, I know, also think narrow use of AI for information could be good. For instance, you create a new AI and it's fed whatever, all scientific journals or whatever it is right but a very specific set of information right then it could crunch and analyze that's where i think there could be some value on the factual side yeah and that's what it has been used before but it that isn't generative that correct but it should be synthesizing data into information and providing it in a cogent way um, as opposed to what's happening now which is it's synthesizing it into smoke and mirrors and a bunch of bullshit it, it it's well, just it's being fed a lot of garbage and so right. big surprise the results right yep um well like always we'll keep an eye on this there's a lot of people that are talking about ai they're talking about the tools they're talking about what it can be used for but they're it doesn't seem like a lot of the people that are really popular over on YouTube um, and in podcasts, well, in the podcast side of things, they're talking more about the sociological impact, but not even close to what where I'm talking about it. Um, but on YouTube, there's a lot of people talking about the tools and how great they are and what they're capable of doing, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and not really broaching the idea that it's going to have a sociological impact, a societal impact. It, it's going to be harming people in well, a great serious topic. Um, yeah. And, uh, for me, you know, I have absolutely no problem using the tools for, uh, again, stirring the pot of creativity. Writer's block can be broken. Uh, you know, being, bogged down by life's woes as an artist doesn't necessarily translate into great art. Um, uh, being incapable of constructing musical prose because you just don't have that ability can be pivoted so that you do have the ability to create music by using AI. Um, it, it is essentially an accessibility tool, right? but it's a it's more about the cognitive cognitive side of accessibility um not the ac the action of uh, accessibility you know a, a lot of people don't need help um utilizing the tool of music or typing or whatever but they don't have the innate ability uh, to construct prose so that's what i think ai should be relegated to not trying to suss out factual information because it's just not doing it right have the researchers 
facilitate all of that and then release it publicly because right now people are treating it as if it is saying fact yeah um, it's just going to be an echo chamber yep and it's the equivalent of doctors saying that cigarettes are healthy for you there's a whole bunch of people that are coming across as highly intelligent, skilled, knowledgeable in the art, subject matter experts, et cetera, et cetera. And they're saying AI is amazing. Go and use it and, and file your taxes with it or um, prosecute your lawsuit um, using AI. And then they end up disbarred um, or sanctioned or whatever. Um, and we've got a yeah, serious can you imagine problem. Imagine that interview with the IRS. Yeah. Uh, why did uh, you put, you know, $10 million on this line? Yeah, I said Well, I my AI told me to. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll keep on talking about it. And, and um, I kind of, I kind of worry uh, that society is buying into AI as something other than uh, just a tool. The business side is using it. And this is all three of the things that I talk about, right? Business, technology, and society, right? So businesses using it to remove humanity from the workplace. Um, society is using it as if it's a subject matter expert, even with the caveat at the bottom of every chat GPT page. And right here, Google telling people, you shouldn't be trusting anything that our Google bot says, or chat bot, I should say, Bard says. Bard is singing a tune of bullshit. So you really shouldn't be listening to it. Um, and then the technological aspect of it is that it is going to happen. It, if not, you know, domestically, then in foreign circles, they're going to be doing it because you know that behind closed doors in a laboratory, there are people that are utilizing it, weaponizing it, some of them are training it specifically for a specific purpose, like you were talking about, right? There are people that are financiers that are sitting there using AI to do trades. And the AI is much more powerful than a day trader sitting there staring at a chart, hoping that the lottery lands on them, you know, that particular hour. And a lot of people are skilled at technical trading, but... But not as they can't crunch as much data as an AI. Correct. Yeah. It, it would change the decimal, right? Well, this is the problem. It is out there. It's not going to be put back in a bag. Um, and if you do hear domestically in the United States, you know, oh, well, we've all risen up as a society and denounced AI. Every other country is still doing it. So you better be friends with the tools. Otherwise you're going to be abused by those tools later on. Um, it's why we do research in uh, viruses and bacteria. It's, it's, you know, a lot of people get pissed off about the idea of gain of function. We're basically giving AI gain of function. Um, but without knowing how that works, nature itself is doing it and if you don't know how to do it then you don't know how to disable it and if you don't know how to disable it then you're at the whim and we have been short-circuiting nature you know for a hundred years 
uh, more and more as science digs deeper into what it is to be a human. Um, and it's being applied to everything else, animals, plants, everything. Um, we need to know so that we aren't victim to the world around us, even though we seem to be victimizing ourselves from time to time. Anyway, um, I think, uh, that's it for tonight, right? Um, I always bring you back to the front page, mash that button. I uh, got a whole bunch of new news. We, I don't know. We go through it periodically, but, um, I don't know. Walmart's going to pay 1.4 billion to buy tiger globals remaining flip cart stake. Wow. Why? Well, right. Assassin's Creed Mirage is only 20 to 30 hours long. Yeah, Remnant 2 is said to be over 400 hours. So 50 bucks seems like a good deal compared to 20 bucks for Assassin's Creed Mirage. Um, yeah, I don't know if that's actually, you know, if that's a good thing or a bad thing there. Depends on the price. Um... I don't know what else total war warhammer threes next dlc jade dragon the fed may be about to crash the plane but the focus should be on profits <laughs> that's always good to hear no <laughs> okay well that's about it um I'll make a, an executive decision as mayor of hometown. We're going to call it tonight. Thanks for hanging out and chat or downloading the uh, podcast. That would be great. Leave a review, please uh, go over to YouTube and follow us there. Like us there, ring the bell there. Follow us over here on Twitch, twitch.tv slash hometown. That's where we're here every night, 9 PM Eastern. Um, I am mayor Watt. That is hometown.com and up above here is the AI that's going to say good night citizens. I think something similar to that. Well, bye-bye hometown citizens. <laughs> yes, I'm being contrary. <laughs> we will see you tomorrow at 9 PM Eastern. Ah, those sentient AIs. I tell you, I don't know what to do with them. Good night.